0: since we're talking about fairy tales with Cinderella. Yeah. Like when we think about it, Mary was working on Once Upon a Mattress. This isn't like Rodgers and Hammerstein is in a really separate timeline. This is a sa- the same timeline. Like she's literally working on Once Upon a Mattress, I think before Cinderella
1: uh, or around
0: the time of Cinderella.
1: What I can tell you is that of uh, the tony awards ceremony for the uh, at the end of the 1959 season she was up against her father for um the sound of music wow <laughs> and lost yeah
0: but can you imagine but, having carol burnett and mary martin like just yeah, those names well, i mean that was really well the golden age of broadway happy friday after thanksgiving everyone it's andrew rimby this is such a special episode and i couldn't think of a better one right after thanksgiving to be back in the Broadway musical space, be back with Jesse Green, who this is his second time on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. If you haven't listened to our first conversation, do so after this episode. I interviewed Jesse about what it means to be a chief theater critic of the New York Times and what is all the ins and outs of that. And he gave so many Broadway musical hot takes, as Jesse always does. Jesse never holds back, and we love that here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Well, I want you all to know that there is going to be a moment where I leave you on the edge of your seats in this episode, so don't come for me in the ivory tower boiler room DMs or message or email me and be like, Andrew, but you left me on the edge of my seat. Well, I'm warning you all now that there's going to be a really exciting moment and also a very in-depth moment that I'm holding for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. Hey, what is the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe, Andrew? It is our Patreon where we have all of our bonus audio and full video episodes of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room interviews. So, if you wanna listen to the entire episode, you don't wanna be on the edge of your seats. You don't want to go into the intermission, so to speak. then head over to patreon.com slash room right now, and you'll listen to the entire episode. And you'll also see there's a bonus audio from today's interview with Jesse Green. Let's just say he gets some really insider knowledge about Stephen Sondheim from Mary Rogers when he collaborated with her. And I'm holding that for the Patreon. Uh, So... If you want to know all about Mary Rogers' opinion on Stephen Sondheim's musicals and the kind of relationship they had, yes. That is the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. Okay. So it's only $5 a month. You also get other bonus audio, including 30 minutes of a Marilyn Monroe and JFK discussion with Elizabeth Winder, the Marilyn Monroe biographer, Gregory Maguire's Wicked Movie musical info. Mary's, True Crime and Academia, bonus episodes. There's so much you'll see on the Patreon. $5 a month. It's like you're buying me a coffee. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Because I do need caffeine to keep this podcast going. Okay, well, I hope you all had a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. Without further ado, I think it's time for the curtain to rise on this episode, so to speak. So let's welcome Jesse Green. Everyone, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I love when we bring back guests from our past. It's so nice to see where they are in their journey. So, if you remember, we last had Jesse Green on to talk about what it is to be a chief theater critic for the New York Times. And we're not, you know, detouring far away from that conversation. But today we actually are going to talk about his book that he collaborated with. Um, on and worked with Mary Rogers, the late, great Mary Rogers. It is called Shy, the Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. And if you don't know, Mary Rogers wrote Once Upon a Mattress. Um, She also wrote the Freaky Friday children's series. And she is the daughter of Richard Rogers from Rogers and Hammerstein. And um, the mother of, I always say Adam Gattell, but I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. No. How do you pronounce it, Jesse? Uh, gettle? As, as
1: it's As he initially told me when I met him, it's gettle rhymes with shtetl.
0: Oh, there he goes. Some Yiddish. OK, uh, so welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for coming back. And yeah, let's dig in right away. Everyone here knows who you are. So, you know, <laughs> but I'll make sure I put a little line of credit about your New York Times work in these episode notes
1: Uh, (laughs) I'm just happy to uh, talk about about Mary and the book
0: yeah well and I was showing Jesse I love the August 7th book review opened with the uh, headline Broadway baby and you know since some can watch this as a teaser on our social media or actually watch the full episode on Patreon nice plug for it uh (laughs) Here is a beautiful photo of Mary with Richard, with her father. Um, So Broadway Baby, is that how you would classify Mary Rogers, Jesse?
1: It's one of the ways you can classify her. And it's certainly a relevant title because of her close uh, friendship, lifelong friendship with Sondheim, who, of course, wrote a song by that name. But, you know, in a way, it's one of the things she was trying to get away from. Uh, the the legacy of her father was overwhelming, uh, not to mention uh, the kind of personal legacy of her mother. So p- part of her life's work was to become not somebody else's baby, hmm. but her own woman and ultimately also a mother, which was very important to her.
0: Yeah. Well, and how long ago did this friendship relationship with Mary start with you? Like, When did you first meet Mary Rogers?
1: Ah, well, I was assigned to write a profile of Adam Gettle for the New York Times Magazine when he was writing The Light in the Piazza. It was at that time in a pre-Broadway tryout in Seattle at the Intermont Theater and uh, in a rather different form from the version that we came to see in New York, but already clearly an amazing new work and uh, not yet Kelly O'Hara in the lead by the way, uh, actually none of the leads except Victoria Clark were yet in in the piece. So uh, I spent some time with him out there and in New York and uh, wrote about him and I thought, well, you know, his his mother's very famous. maybe maybe she and her husband, Hank Gettle, will tell me something interesting. So I called them up and she said, "Oh, absolutely, come on over." And basically, it was like it, w- it was like water gushing from a well. I I I didn't even have the capacity to get down every interesting thing she and her husband were saying. Some of it really not the kind of thing you would put in a profile, um, or the kind of thing you would expect the parents to tell you about their son. But uh, all of it really uh, smart, um, deeply thought about, and wittily explained. And just to cap off the, the event at the end of our little tea party, uh, Hank uh, said, well, here's here's a little file of things you may find interesting, which he put in a neat little envelope for me to take off. And uh, th- it, it introduced me to what I had already heard about Mary and the family in general, which was this, what I call this knee jerk transparency. Um, she had grown up in such a stifled and essentially mendacious family, people who kept all their secrets, not only secret from the world, but secret from one another, uh, that she uh, couldn't bear the idea of living that way herself and perhaps overcompensated, but it was delicious. And that's how, that's when I first met her. So that was around 2003, I suppose. And um, we, we became we became friends. I uh, after the piece came out, she loved it. Uh, I don't think Adam loved it, but she loved it, and Hank loved it, and <laughs> we we got to be friends.
0: Yeah. Well, so do you still keep conversations with Adam, or are you not on that kind of friend like well, a friendship level?
1: It, it was an interesting thing about this book, which um, you know, Mary was very clear. She did not want it to be the book her children might want her to write. Hmm. She wanted it to be the book she wanted to write. And she knew there would be a conflict between those two, two things. There are things she wanted to talk about that anyone's child would say, oh, mom, please don't do that. Um, well, what did she do? She got... talk...
0: Did she like tell you details about his brisk or something? <laughs>
1: Not just Adam. No, this was about everything in her life. I mean, they—you can imagine a kid not wanting a mother to talk about her affairs. You know, uh, you know how she comported herself as a young woman between her marriages, Hmm. about her uh, use of amphetamines, about uh, all kinds of things that she wanted to say, and she felt that her family's many books and biographies and memoirs, uh, essentially were fantasies that told nothing true and that a lot of memoirs that she read were similar and also dry as dust mm-hmm. and she wanted none of that. So she actually, you know, signed a document saying that the family could not read it until it was done.
0: Wow. Well, um, I mean, it is called the alarmingly outspoken memoir. So <laughs> it's true that the transparency is in the title. Um, You know, and I do want to, Return there was, I do remember there was a documentary about Mary, wasn't there? Because I do remember, or it was about her father, but she's given a lot of discussion. Yeah.
1: There there was a documentary about Richard Rogers. I think it was a PBS kind of thing. And uh she and her sister, her younger sister Linda, participated in it. And you I think I had already seen that when I met her, and that's why I knew she was going to be. Frank, mm-hmm. uh, because it, in that uh, documentary she was already talking about her father as a as an alcoholic, which is something that people didn't really know at that mm-hmm. time, and that I, as I understood it, her sister and other members of the family would have preferred she not reveal. There was nothing that was going to make Mary reveal something more than someone saying, "Please don't talk about that." Uh, that was <laughs> that was just going to cause her to talk about it. So. Yes, uh, but there, there's been no, there had been no real study of Mary herself, except in that Broadway baby category that you brought up at the beginning. So when I met her, I gather, unbeknownst to me at the time, she had been asked by the publisher for our strauss uh, to write her memoirs by Jonathan Galassi, the editor in chief at the time of, of that publishing house. And uh, she tried and apparently tried for a while and was just extremely unhappy with what she was doing, both the process and the result. And she vacated the contract, and then she reinstated it and vacated it and reinstated it. And finally, she had the idea that wouldn't it be fun if she worked on it with someone she enjoyed spending time with uh, and who was writing? I guess she liked enough to ask. So she asked me, and, and that's how the book came to be.
0: Yeah, well, and I want to return, of course, to I know she tries to get away from her father, but I know she had a lot of opinions and I it does come through in her memoirs about like the difference between her father and Oscar Hammerstein, because I do remember reading especially Oscar. I've been to that farm Highland Farm in Doylestown. It's very pretty. Um, I still think they should make it a Rogers Hammerstein theater. But, you know, they're not asking me. Uh, and um, he also lived in Great Neck. I mean, he really went around Oscar and he seemed kind of very genial from what I've read, but it seemed like Richard had more, Richard Rogers was much more tight-lipped or even, um, I don't want to say cold, but kind of had a very different attitude.
1: Than oh, Oscar. he was cold. He, he, he was cold and, and so was his liquor. He kept it in the toilet tank. He kept mm-hmm. bottles of gin in the toilet tank uh, to hide it from the family. The the maids uh, found it and, and told them. Um, you know, Mary, yes, has a lot of opinions and a lot of feelings. She ultimately forgave her father and in a way never had to because she always had the feeling from him she wanted to have, even if it didn't come from him personally. It came from his music. Mm. and she describes it as a direct line to to the heart and so whatever else was wrong in their relationship she always had that and and she says at another point talent excuses everything except Arthur Lawrence so in in this case you know she really she really came to peace with him and and she admits that both he and her mother as awful as they could be i mean they were really awful to her in many ways i mean they said nasty nasty things to a child that you really should never be saying to a child and were very controlling but you know when she got into trouble and she did get into trouble they took care of it i mean they as she said they did the big things really well it's just that there were so many more small things anyway so 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 you know he really was a kind of a, I don't want to say a monster, but all that mattered to him was his work. And everything else was an, an, you know, an inconvenience. And she, that's what she felt like, an inconvenience. Whereas Hammer, and he kind of had that reputation. He kind of, he was thought of as the colder businessman, um, who really, you know, took a harsh line and people in the business knew about his uh, sort of excessive well, extreme womanizing. Hmm. Uh, he was not above any sort of thing that we would find cancelable today. Hammerstein had the reputation of being a saint, uh, partly I think because of those lyrics. You know, uh, some of which are caricatured correctly as being sacred. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those sound of music lyrics and some of those big hymns that. Yeah.
0: You know, the are- hills are <laughs> alive with the sound of music.
1: Yes. And, you know, climb every mountain and Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, But he just he hid his coldness better. I don't know whether he was how he was with his family so much. She talks quite a lot about it. She had a jaundiced view of what kind of parent he was. And he was personally very nice to her. But Mm -hmm. the idea that he was the good guy and Rogers was the tough guy was not correct. They were both tough. They were both really good businessmen, which is why nearly uniquely among American musical theater composers, they were able to create a great amount of wealth from their work. It wasn't all lost to other people. And uh, and to maintain it well after their deaths.
0: Yeah, their um, estate is going strong and has a big social media presence on Instagram. So, I <laughs> no, I, I say Rodgers and Hammerstein, they really... Like you said, Jesse, they were incredible marketers of their material. Well,
1: they, and- the first thing they knew is you have to own your material, mm-hmm. and the, you know, very few people have that option when they're starting out. Uh, they didn't either, but they bought it all back. The minute they wrote Oklahoma, they bought back anything that they had, either of them had written before, and going forward, they owned everything outright. They uh, did not have to share with a publisher. They did the publishing in-house. They did not fail. They, uh, they owned the movie rights. They, that's how it all happened. And it took a lot of nerve, but also a lot of cultural heavyweightness to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, um, And I think so- they were the first, right, to actually write a musical for the film, for um, the screen and not for an actual stage with Cinderella.
1: Well, no, Cinderella was written for television.
0: Yeah, for television, for the oh, television for the screen. screen. Sorry, yeah. I don't mean for the yeah, I don't mean for yeah. the cinema.
1: Yeah, I, well, they may not have been the first, but they were among the first, and it was uh, certainly the most successful one-time performance that had ever happened on television, and and I is still up there today. It's uh, it was an amazing. Of ingenuity for its time and also a beautiful score, I have to say. Oh, it
0: is. That overture. Well, let's go into music because I think this is actually a great transition since we're talking about fairy tales. And now a message from the Gay and
2: Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemrick, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon, or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the woman he called his swans. Now for the special offer. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit geo-review.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code ITBR for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine.
0: with Cinderella, yeah. like when we think about it, Mary was working on Once Upon a Mattress. This isn't like Rodgers and Hammerstein is in a really separate timeline. This is a sa- the same timeline. Like she's literally working on Once Upon a Mattress, I think before Cinderella uh, or around the time of Cinderella.
1: What I can tell you is that uh, the Tony Awards ceremony for the uh, at the end of the 1959 season, she was up against her father for um, *The Sound of Music*. Wow, <laughs> and lost. <laughs> yeah,
0: but can you imagine but, having Carol Burnett and Mary Martin, like just yeah, those names? Well, I mean, that was really well the golden age of Broadway.
1: Well, yes, one of the things I still find incredible even though I, I wrote the book, you know, I, I, which we can discuss how it happened that Mary died during yes. our process of conversation and, and so I had to write the book. But like every day was, even though I had heard all the stories and taken them down from her, it was like, oh my God, who, what other name can, be, can we find here? I just, I, it was just so overwhelming how central she was to so many elements of what we call the golden age of musical theater and to New York culture, generally speaking, of that era. You know, she worked for many years for Leonard Bernstein for the Young People's Concerts as just an example. She was hit on by Julie Stein. You know, it's just it's, everyone you've heard of is in there somehow because, she, you know, she met them as a child in her parents' living room, you know, at, at parties when she she took their coats. so. Um, she was
0: a connector too like she really was a promoter and like she wanted to know the genre like that's clear she really wanted to be up to date with even you know when her friend when steven sondheim who his mentor was oscar hammerstein like well
1: that's how they met yeah they met at oscar hammerstein's house when sondheim was 14 and she was 13. wow and uh you know uh, the story as you can read is that he instantly beat her in two games of chess, uh and then went to the piano and played some Gershwin for her, and that was it. She that was her her talent crush for the rest of her life, and and a little more than that too, as we as we learn in the book. Yeah, but uh, yeah,
0: I don't want you to I, give it all away, Jesse. You don't have to do that. <laughs> we want people to get shy the book.
1: But 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 we should we should. St- Talk about mattress, Once Upon a Mattress a bit, because...
0: Oh, that's what I wanted to say. Sorry. With the overture, like with Cinderella, it's that very traditional musical theater, this lavish score. And Mary starts off with this similar, like with Once Upon a Mattress, almost the harp or the trumpet. I think it's a trumpet, but um, like a minstrel call. But then all of a sudden we're thrown into this Gershwin jazzy score. Like, almost of uh, something you'd hear in a cafe in New York City of that time. So like, that's, yeah, that distinction, kind of this well... dichotomy she creates. <laughs>
1: And and that was part of the generational change from her father's way of creating musicals and and frankly, also his ability to do things that Mm -hmm. no one else could do, both because of his talent and because of his power. Um, But in that younger generation of which she was a part, there was a different attitude toward the material. All of the Rodgers and Hammerstein material is, if nothing else, sincere. Mm. Um, And it's often sincere about difficult human problems uh that you know often about racism now you may not agree today with the way they broached that subject but they were working at the edge of what white people of that era could do and would think about Mm -hmm. by the time you get to mary and steve sondheim and that generation sincerity has a big question mark over it because it gets associated with the war years and with Somehow, with uh, the whole world that young people were trying to rebel against. And so, uh, in Once Upon a Mattress, you basically have a satire mm-hmm. of a fairy tale instead of the fairy tale itself. So, what you're hearing in the music is an expression of both the underlying minstrelly quality of it, and then, yeah, but ha cha cha, we're making fun of it at the same time. And, you know, the next show she wrote. I think for the very next one was the Mad Show, which was based on Mad Magazine and was a big off-Broadway hit. It ran for two years, which completely embodies that stick out your tongue attitude toward the parents. And there was a way in which that's what she was doing. But she had also absorbed the craft and the lessons uh, from her father and his generation. And she knew how to write. She knew how to write a damn good song.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Well, and everyone who's listened to this, um, the theme music um, is going to be the overture. So you've already heard some of the overture. That way it's already in your head. But I do. It is trumpets. I know now it's that's it's this brassy moment of I love the overture because it really hits that crescendo with shy. And I mean, what a title for her life, because that's that whole musical number is Winifred is not shy. She's the complete opposite. It's this like turn on its head, meaning of the word. Everything's unexpected. She's not the dainty princess. And that satire you bring up, it really is the heart of musical comedy in its own, um, in a very nuanced way. Like it's like, how is it different than other musical comedies before that, Jesse?
1: Well, I want to say, musical comedies before that, even not the hypersincere kind that were not really musical comedies by Rodgers and Hammerstein, those were musical dramas, mm. but uh, the musical comedies before this era that we're talking about and were essentially random collections of skits and tunes that were cobbled together to, to make an entertainment more or less in a unified fashion, often quite a bit less. Uh, it had begun to change, but um, but Once Upon a Mattress is extremely well crafted. It's a li- it's jokey and and satirical, but it is unbelievably well put together. That's why it's still one of the most performed shows in the repertoire. Uh, and it, in the book, it, it, she explains that the way they had to write it at, at this summer camp, basically, where they had nine uh, primary performers, uh, whom the producer insisted each get a big role, which is a lot, they sort of built it backward from those nine people and their specific talents and lacks thereof, like one of them couldn't sing and one of them couldn't move and one of them was pretty but just couldn't act, You know, they had all these problems they had to deal with and the, and, and the result is that they have to show that most uh, high schools and even junior high schools and amateur groups and community theater groups can do because there are a lot of roles Mm -hmm. and because you don't have to be good at all three things you know everybody the person you have who can't act oh there's there's a role for that person the person who can sing but who can't move oh there's a role for that person that it was turned out to be a brilliant way of putting it together the other thing i want to say though is marshall bearer who wrote the lyrics and co-wrote the book uh was a brilliant musical theater writer and the lyrics are Tight, 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 clever, lots of wordplay that's really revealing and 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 is a kind of a good second to Sondheim. I mean, he sometimes gives Sondheim a run for the money and cleverness. And that song Shy is so well written. I always like to point out that the way Mary said it really shows her deep understanding of how you make how you make a song in theater, which is especially hard for a comedy song. So She's got the word, the, the main chorus has the, begins with the phrase, I've always been shy. Mm. That's the first phrase of it. And she sets it so that from I've always been to the word shy is an octave leap, which that's the joke.
2: I've always been shy.
1: Like, yes. you, th- how do you get the joke musically? Well, you make somebody like bellow this huge note on the word shy. Yeah, and it's the, filled with. Yeah, the belt.
0: belting is the satire. Right. That. And also, how about how seductive she is, or just all the lyrics of like, oh, it's kind of a kiss me, Kate, Tom, Dick, or Harry, like that double entendre. Like well, you'll do, you'll do, you'll do, like, or no, she says, not you, not you, and there's right. like, who is who's the lucky man? And like this just keeps getting repeated. But um, I am curious, did she ever tell you where "Hey Nani Nani" came from? Because that has always been curious to me.
1: "Hey Nani Nani" was a well-known phrase from uh, Renaissance drama, from ah, from
0: uh, interesting,
1: you know, and even into Shakespeare. That that's all that is, and they make fun of it you know hey nani 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 is it you is it you and the prince somebody finally says hey nani 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 no <laughs> it's not nobody wanted to be the the chosen one it's it's full of sly references like that some of which are perhaps not recognizable today but most of which still are and and i understand from from what you told me before that a, a lot of people you know have played these roles
0: oh yeah well No, thank you for that. So main stage in South Jersey, the performing arts camp I went to. Caitlin, shout out to Caitlin. She played Winifred. And then our very own Mary DePippi from the podcast played the jester. Uh, But Caitlin said that playing Winifred was what got her break, was a breakthrough into comedic performance. And that that music really helped with comedic timing and building her vocal chops. Because it's vocally not an easy score for Winifred. And I agree. I think not only just shy, but I think happily ever after is even more
1: it's of a, a difficult a number. List. Yeah. It's a big thing, as they say. I, something you you said before brought to mind that I, I should have mentioned. You know, another big in this show is an alto, is a, is a belter. The, mm-hmm. the traditional leads in the Rogers and Hammerstein were sopranos, or that's true. And they had to really do a lot of head voice stuff. There's very little head voice in this show because it's a comedy. And yes. that's another big change you see in, in this generation of stuff. Sondheim also tends to have his women have lower voices uh, than than the generation before.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for that. Because you're right, in my own little corner from Cinderella is such a soprano, like, you know, very airy. Julie Andrews, I mean, come on, embodies it wonderfully. Um, but very different than brassy Carol Burnett. Uh so what I am really interested in, especially like I'm now reminded of even Guys and Dolls, which had come out before Once Upon a Mattress, which I oh, yeah. think too really shifted musical comedy. Yeah, well-
1: Yes, I mean, Guys and Dolls is one of the greatest American musicals, certainly, and was an early example of a show that was so tightly built and smart about its uh, verbal and musical construction that it remains uh, eminently reproducible. I mean, it works like gangbusters. I just saw it not so long ago. Uh, It's wonderful and can be done, and yet can be done by anyone. I mean, I've seen it in high schools be great. I've Mm -hmm. seen it at major professional uh, Shakespearean houses be great. So I don't mean to say that there weren't good comedies.
0: No, 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 no. But I'm kind of just saying, like, in a way, though, what I think Once Upon a Mattress and Guys and Dolls do so well is they have those remnants of what you were saying of early musical comedy. They still have their featured songs like think of Miss Adelaide and Take Back Your Mink. That's a Mm -hmm. traditional type of vaudeville number. but it's all connected and interwoven kind of like why I think Chicago does so well as a musical same. That's why I love it. I like the vaudeville style, but mm-hmm. once upon a mattress, like you, each person really does get a number. Like the queen gets her number. The jester gets a number. The minstrel gets a number, you know, Winifred gets several. Dauntless kind of, he hey, gets hey, some hey, hey, he gets some I played Dauntless.
1: Him. I played Dauntless. One I love
0: Dauntless. Times. No, I think I think Dauntless should actually be played as a closeted gay man, but that's my own. Well,
1: I think that's what happens when I played him.
0: Well, hey Jesse, <laughs> I still think Winifred should be get turned on its kind of company style. Um, if Marianne Elliott's looking, listening. I do think it would be interesting to have a man play Winifred and like have this like gay love story because the whole song Fred might be might be an interesting read when <laughs> when he gets called Fred but whatever we'll, we'll you, see well, you
1: know that you know that they did a uh, mattress a f- number of years ago at the uh, uh, in New York with um, uh, Lipsinka John Epperson playing the queen
0: oh I heard that was
1: really well and, received and Jackie Hoffman as uh, Winifred
0: oh um, oh and, that and, must have been an experience
1: yeah but uh, you you mentioned Chicago and I just want to say it's an interesting comparison point because by the time you get to Chicago, we're now fully transformed from the early comedies through these kind of stick out your tongue satirical comedies into the concept musical comedies or whatever that show is. I don't know if it's a comedy or not, but it plays like a fun time. Mm-hmm. But it's about something incredibly dark using the materials of, of fun entertainment genres and so this is you know things evolve and mattress and the shows of that ilk of that period were part of the evolution that brought us to some of the familiar things we see today.
0: Yeah well and I think it's a dark comedy definitely and just like a lot of falsies later work like Pippin so much hilarity but uh, you know ending a musical with Pippin with uh, trying to get your lead character to die like through hellfire is not a uh, <laughs> burning himself alive. That's not a really uh, uplifting message. But um, right. but I think it sh- right reflects the culture of America of that time. And it's also like you're seduced into the comedy. That's how I feel of Chicago. Is wow, I'm really laughing. But wait, why am I loving these vain murderesses? Something's. Right. <laughs> this is the circus of the American criminal system of celebrity, right? Well- I mean, but I am curious, did Mary bring up a lot of musical reference points of like later musicals? Did she talk about her favorite musicals? Do you have a queer fascination with classic films? Ever wish you'd be transported back to that golden age of cinema as if you're in the movies themselves? Hi, my name is Christian Garcia. And I am the host of that old gay classic cinema. Join my friends and I as we travel back in time to that classic age of film. And peel back the layers of how these films transformed our view behind the camera. And into the lens of cinema. Make sure to follow my Instagram at that old gay classic cinema. And I'll be sure to save you seated at our next showing. See you there.
1: she she had a fairly large coterie of young people who sought her uh, attention and praise mm-hmm. and uh, plus she met a lot of people through her son Adam Gettle's work from that generation of people she knew and supported a lot of them and made sure rogers and Hammerstein made deals with some of them so they could continue to work. She was very quietly you know helping out with a lot of the younger generation. Um, I will say she had extremely high standards. And in the end, there were only a few people in all of the history of musical theater whom she considered to be truly top drawer, but she had a great fondness for that second drawer, which is where she considered herself to be.
0: Mm. Well, do you think, did she realize how much she really, shifted the conversation in a really exciting way with even the jazz score of Once Upon a Mattress. And because I remember she, I think she was playing Yesterday I Loved You because that really goes against the meter tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, her father was actually really alarmed. Like, wait, why are you not doing 4-4 meters of music? What is happening here? And well, you know. he he
1: he didn't like how she handled the bridge. Of that song, uh, which it's it's there's a, it takes quite a leap both in terms of rhythm as you say, but also uh, it's an unexpected key change, not the con- and and you don't really know how is it ever getting back because that's what those songs did they they always got back and uh, you you know or at least in that era they did and he said to her you know why did you do that or something to that effect. And she said, well, because I thought that would be good. And he said, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. And she never played him another song. Mm. She just didn't need that voice in her ears. It has to be said, as she uh, matured as an artist, even though most of what she wrote was no longer produced because of various problems with copyright and not, not obtaining the rights to the underlying material in time and things like that, her music too advanced quite a lot. Uh, while it still retained the, in many cases, the grand the grandness of her father's style, but was so much more adventurous harmonically, mm. and uh, is quite beautiful. And it's quite a loss that we. It's very hard to hear those songs.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what I love about even just using yesterday, I loved you. Is there's even this round this um round when um Lady Larkin and um oh, what's the su- su- suitor's name
1: yeah uh, uh, it's I'm confusing him with the name of the character I played in another production of once upon a mattress Sir, uh, Sir Studley, but it's not him
0: it'll come it'll come to us, yeah, but uh, yeah. so her um suitor that she brings back in a little while again in that moment of. Um, yeah, Jesse's gonna do some research, but uh, I love that in a little while gets repeated as he's singing the main chorus, so there's even some really interesting um rounds going, and I love though the shifts, like see, I like that going against the norm um yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, sir sir Harry, by the way, thank you, um, sir Harry well, you know, she was. Partly she wanted to show what she could do and partly she was responding to what Marshall Bearer was handing her in terms of lyrics. And he had a very complex sense of what, how you can get drama or comedy out of a song. So they, you know, they were, she was very young at that time and was learning at the, from him and with him how to create this material. And, you know, the idea that they did it as quickly as they did is still astonishing considering how well it has lasted. But that's part of why it's lasted too, because it has a very fresh quality. It doesn't feel labored. It's very excitingly new.
0: Yeah, wait, how long ago was it again for their um, work on Once Upon a Mattress?
1: Well, when they were at this camp called Tamament, where it was, they originally did it, you know, uh, over the summer of of 1958, I think, or nine, um, eight. They had three weeks. (laughs) Then, uh, you know, that was just there. And then they got uh, commercial producers interested and George Abbott came on board and he said, well, all right, I can do it. I've got like eight minutes between here and here. Can you rewrite the whole thing and add five songs and take out eight songs? And they said, sure. And they did it in another, I don't know, six weeks. They completely remade it. I mean, it was, it's, there's, a few things in common but not a great deal with the original and then it opened off broadway and was a big hit and then they moved to broadway uh where it did not in fact make money initially uh but obviously has long since made a lot of money
0: yeah well and then there was a the tv production with carol burnett
1: too well yes i mean so mm-hmm. you know <laughs> she wound up doing some of the same formats that her father had pioneered, mm-hmm. uh, including the the TV musical and pretty successfully, you have to say. I mean, yes. not just once, but I think there's been two or three TV versions.
0: Oh, that's right. There was the one with Tracy Ullman. Oh, yeah, where Carol Burnett was, played the queen. That was in the yes,
1: 2000s. And I feel like there was another. But anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Cinderella had a few. There was the Leslie Ann Warren. After yes, Julianne's. And Andrews. then there was uh, the uh,
1: Brandy. The, the Brandy one, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Which just celebrated that a reunion.
1: Turned into a stage musical, which Mary told me she really hated until it was a hit and then she liked it pretty well.
0: <laughs> well, I'm assuming there might have been some residuals, but.
1: I you, you would, yes, yes. But,
0: well, and I mean, it, as I yeah. said, did she? Well, did she? Does did she own Once Upon a Mattress, Jesse? Yes.
1: Like, well, for... she co-owned it. She co-owned it with her co-writers.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, but also the original producers. So it, it's not the same as what Rogers was. Richard Rogers was able to do because he and and Oscar Hammerstein produced their own shows. So they mm-hmm. owned everything. Um, they, you know, Mary owned her part of it, which was a nice little part of it, and has earned earned her a lot of money which she needed because she had six children
0: yeah Well, did um like something that i'm curious about is does the actual licensing of once upon a mattress sit under rogers and hammerstein or it sits under another subsidiary because of mary rogers and marshall
1: no it's 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 uh it is the license is controlled by Rodgers and Hammerstein, which is now a part of Concord Music Group. Mm. Uh, The families sold the copyrights on almost all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein and Rodgers and Hart works uh, some years back because they saw where they were going. Those copyrights don't last forever and they wanted to sell while they still had value. So they sold, but um, Mary's rights to Once Upon a Mattress were not sold uh, and continue to, as far as I know, accrue to the family mm. and they are managed by
0: Rogerson Hammerstein.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. And wait, her co-writer's name is Marshall.
1: Well, wait. Marshall Bearer, B-A-R-E-R, wrote Bearer. the lyrics okay. and was a one of three writers of the book.
0: Wow. Okay. It's a pretty big but team. The,
1: the primary writer. Definitely. Oh, okay.
0: Well, yeah. so going back to just her legacy as a female composer. Um hmm. that you said she was mentoring like behind the scenes. Did she ever talk to you about just the rise of female composers? Because I mean, we're in a real there's been a lot of female composers now on the Broadway stage. Not like I mean, I think there's I still more male lot. composers. Well, we have Lynn Ahrens, who's a pretty famous female composer.
1: Well, she's not a composer though.
0: She's a oh lyricist. no, no, she's a lyricist. Sorry, you're right, you're right. So the Um, uh, lyricists
1: lyricists were a little more common, female lyricists were a little more common and still are, but uh, there's actually, you know, a disappointing dearth of women composers on Broadway, even though there's a lot of talented women writing songs. Of course, there's Janine Tesori, who is fantastic, and there's, you know, younger uh, women writing shows that are you know, finally getting produced. We, had, you know, Hades Town
0: was one, and
1: oh, Cindy Lauper. Yes. How um,
0: about though um, uh, the Suffragette one? Wasn't that a female composer? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, Shana Taub. Yeah. Um, but in in Mary's time, she was kind of a unicorn. Yeah. Uh, there had there had been one or two women who had written either some songs for reviews on Broadway or um a couple shows that people didn't seem to really remember very well. I looked them up, but Mary was the first uh, extremely prominent one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And many people might say that was because of her last name, but it was also because of the success of the work. She had an interesting relationship to that. She realized later in her life that she had been a, what she called a bad feminist. Not that she didn't agree with the principles of feminism, but that she didn't act as a feminist when she might have. I mean, she certainly did in terms of trying to live a full life not defined by what men wanted her to be. I mean, there's no question she really grabbed that one and went with it. But um, she avoided a lot of the time working with other women, Um, still being part of that generation that would have seen her as an exception. And so she sought the safety of male figures in a, in a field dominated by men. Even, she was asked at one point to work uh, with, um, um, oh God, now I, I'm blanking suddenly.
2: <sighs>
1: okay. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the greatest of the, of the lyricists of that time was a woman whose name I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on right now. And she didn't do it because she she felt that, you know, it was too iffy to have a show where both the composer and the lyricist were women. Later, she, as I say, did make up for it. She supported a lot of uh, young w- women composers and others and also taught. Uh, so um, that I, I, I know that she helped to see that generation. Um, but, you know, a lot of things that she did in her life, she only came to understand what was, she she had an easy time understanding what was wrong about things she did or when she didn't do enough. She had a harder time understanding or accepting what good she did. And that was another reason the book had to be co-written uh, because she just wasn't... Uh, uh, she she wasn't kind enough to herself Hmm. you can you can it's fun to read and it's it's very bracing to hear someone you know be self-critical as as self-critical as they are critical of other people it feels fair somehow but i felt that there had to be somebody else in there saying yeah but no that's really too modest and Hmm. so you know the these there's the book has an unusual format and one of the reasons for that is to allow me to come in and contradict her, or or flesh out some things that she's glossing over.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder. And what year? You know, because you, like you said, it's handed. You were had to finish it because she passed away. So, what year did she pass away, Jesse? She she died in
1: uh, two thousand fourteen. We we first started talking about the book in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. um, and it took. Four years before she finally decided yes let's do it and then the contracts had to be drawn up and we started in 2012 so we only had two years together although it was an intense two years I spent maybe 10 hours a week with her every week for the entire two years basically and uh we You know, it's funny. I was just opening up my first email to her. I'm going to go away from the screen for a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when I um, when we were going to have our first meeting, and I wrote to her. This was in 2012. Hey, Mary, let's start with your mother, shall we? You needn't prepare anything. Just store the word in your mind and see what accumulates. So so that's how we would work. I would sort of prompt her with a theme or a moment or a year, and we would just talk about it and dig into the history and get get her feelings about it all. And at the end of that time, I had 600 pages wow. in in her voice of typed notes that were completely out of order and would go, you know, jump around and go back to
0: things that we had talked it was about. Probably such a free, it was probably such a free association exercise. It was. It sounds, well, you it was were like her way way therapist.
1: <laughs> it very much. We, we joked about that a lot. And also the way she was sitting on a couch and I was sitting on a chair mm-hmm. with my laptop, which is the equivalent of a notebook. In fact, it was a notebook laptop, I suppose. And, um, you know, tell me about your mother. It, it, it very much was, but... I, and I've never been a shrink, but what I can say seems different to me is that we both had a blast. We we had so much fun, mm-hmm. and uh, to my amazement, also, you know, some of the stories she told me, most of them were were ones I had never heard, and they were, in many cases, shocking, and uh, and in a few cases seemed extremely unlikely. And I would go back and I'd say, Mary, I'm going to have to check on that. And she said, well, I can't help you. I don't know. I, that's just what I remember. And you know, the ones that I was able to check, which was most of them, they checked out. They there. There's a few that were wrong, and I note them in the book. But for the most part, the most, the more, uh, the more outrageous the story, the more likely it was to be true.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and wait, was she alive when Fun Home came out? Jesse, I'm trying to remember the because uh, that was Janine Tesori, right?
1: It, it was, and I th- I'm pretty sure she was. Just we're we're looking this up right now. Because um, I I'm did home, yeah. see
0: that was a very yes. powerful musical.
1: Yeah, well, um, she she thought Janine was top notch.
0: Really? Um, oh, that's uh, yeah. that's nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, as did I. But you you also have to understand, in terms of that young generation, she tried not to be uh, too judgy because she had a horse. In the race, uh, mm-hmm. her own son, um, you know, whom she naturally thought was the best of the best.
0: Yes, yes. Well, of course. Well, that's good. You know, it seems like they had such a clearly a close bond, and she was fostering his passion. Um,
1: yes, I, I should also say, you know, she had six children, five of whom survived into adulthood, and you know, they are all amazing people. They they may not be as famous. But they're all pretty amazing people and uh, she had a different relationship with each of them and um, it was an unusual family to say the least both in terms of its composition and the you know the way they lived and Mary was away a lot you know writing or you know in Hollywood doing movies she also wrote for movies for a while and um she 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 did not want to raise her family the way she had been raised. That was her top priority. And that is definitely something she succeeded in.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, well, and are you OK? Just a few more minutes, Jesse to I'm fine. OK, OK. Just because I do want to, you know, ask you because you said you spend 10 hours every week for at least two years with her. Um, You know, how do you feel looking back on your time with her, having lost her? I mean, now it's 2022, but, you know, that like even how she would be reflecting on what's going on on Broadway right now. Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room audience. It is Andrew Rimby, the director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to our winter season. And are you trying to stay warm this season? Well, guess what? We have the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. It is our Patreon, where there is so much bonus content. So I'll go over all that. But first, it's only $5, which is less than a latte, a cappuccino, a coffee, a tea, basically anything now, because, you know, we have some inflation going on. So... Join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash room. What do you get? You get Gregory Maguire giving us all the scoop on the Wicked Movie musical. You get Jesse Green giving us his hot takes on the Broadway musical. If you don't know who Jesse is, well, you should because he's the chief theater critic of the New York Times. You get all the JFK and Marilyn Monroe scoop from Elizabeth Winder, a Marilyn Monroe biographer, so much more. You get all our video interviews. You can see everything, including the bonus content. And Mary's going to tell you from True Crime and Academia what you get later. But if you're not following us on social media and seeing our video teasers, well, you need that to stay, you know, nice and energized on these winter days. So follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. While it's still here, why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's my chief contributor, Mary. Hey, True Crime friends and Ivory Tower Boiler Room friends. Like Andrew said, you're going to get access to all of this bonus content. That includes True Crime and Academia. So not only will you have access to the bonus episode each month, you will also have video access to the interviews that I conduct on my podcast once a month. You get all of that extra content at your fingertips whenever you feel like watching it, literally for a cup of coffee. So why don't you just buy us one? That'd be so nice. We would appreciate that because we love your support already, but we could use a little bit more if you don't. Oh, yes, we could. And also, hey, do you all know you can actually DM us questions at our social media channels? Yes. Also, why don't you ask us questions with our social media posts? We love it. We even shout out questions on our episodes. And if you want, you can always email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. To actually order our merchandise. So Mm -hmm. we have hats, we have t-shirts, we have posters, we have everything. If you want any merchandise with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room logo, we're going to make it happen for you. Okay. On that note, happy winter season, everyone.
1: Happy winter.